0: Yeah. Hey, what's good, everybody? This is Propaganda Anonymous, and you are tuned in to the Propanon podcast. Join me as I explore topics discussed in the work of Robert Anton Wilson and interview some of the coolest people in the world. What do we talk about on the Propanon podcast? We talk story. We talk symbolic anthropology crime and criminology alternative reality games and ufos we talk conspiracy theory comedy comic books and quantum physics liberation theology negative theology terrorism and music sex magic and drugs psychedelics housing and love this is the propanon podcast tune in open your fucking ears jackass on a cold february morning in the year 2000 I found myself waiting in line to enter the Hammerstein Ballroom on 34th Street in New York City to attend the disinfo.com conference. This was an all-day event organized by today's guest, Richard Metzger, and his devoted team of badass cyberdelic revolutionaries, an event that, unknown to me at the time, would impact my life in more ways than I ever imagined as a 20-year-old acid-loving anarchist searching for illumination and enlightenment in the books of writers like Robert Anton Wilson, Timothy Leary, and John C. Lilly. It was Robert Anton Wilson, scheduled as the headlining speaker, that brought me to the event in the first place. Months before attending the DisinfoCon, I was traveling throughout America on a cross-country tour as part of a college class called the American Odyssey. This class consisted of only a handful of students driving in a van with our professor and attending political protests and demonstrations all over the United States in the times leading up to the new millennium. This was an exciting trip to say the least. As a class, we attended the protests of the School of the Americas in Fort Benning, Georgia organized by the priest Father Roy Bourgeois who had been seeking to have the School of the Americas closed because it trained and continues to train soldiers from many other countries in torture techniques and the most innovative ways in how to murder people people like the great Archbishop Romero the Catholic priest who was murdered by thugs trained at the School of the Americas one day when he was giving mass in his church in El Salvador. Romero had made the grave mistake of taking Jesus up on his word that Christianity should be for the poor and downtrodden, which greatly upset the rulers of El Salvador, who ordered his grisly murder because he practiced liberation theology, or Christianity for the poor. Before this class ended, we attended a giant demonstration in Seattle at the end of November 1999, a demonstration that would later turn into a citywide riot once a group of black bloc anarchists started wrecking shop. The four-day protest was aimed at disrupting the meetings of the World Trade Organization and drawing attention to the perils of globalization implemented by corporate executives and heads of state who pass international economic trade deals without consulting the everyday people of the earth affected the most by the outcomes of such deals. The giant protest would later be called the Battle of Seattle and it would dominate news headlines for the next coming months. So, when I was listening to Richard Metzger speak from the podium that day at the DisinfoCon about how we've won, meaning the counterculture of the 1960s and those of us influenced by it, have essentially defeated the great beast and can now begin to take over the whole damn world if we wanted to, I was listening. Something was happening in the year 2000. A positive exuberance permeated the air throughout the whole complex that day, and I got a natural high with no drugs at all that lasted for several days after the event. Just from running around and talking to everyone, nonstop, about everything that I thought was cool, which many of my fellow attendees also thought was cool. The theme of the event was a phrase borrowed from Timothy Leary, and it was find the others. Once, Leary was asked what a person should do after they had turned on, tuned in, and dropped out. And Leary responded, find the others. So at the disinfo conference that day, I thought I had done just that. I have so many amazing memories from that day. I'll just share a few with you. I saw Douglas Rushkoff and Grant Morrison for the first time there. I got to listen to them speak, and I became a fan ever since. I got to see the performance artist Joe Coleman shoot fireballs into the crowd from the Roman candles that he had hidden underneath his button-down shirt, and he lit a blaze at the end of his talk, leaving the stage in a haze of smoke like a true mysterio magician that he is. I got to see the performance artist Kembra Falver and her band perform their fabulous Wall of Vaginas routine which was comprised of four naked ladies covered head-to-toe in body paint, laying atop each other with their legs spread wide open, exposing their yonies. as Kembra, also naked and painted and slathered and splattered ultra-white paint onto their pussy lips and legs, all while the amazed crowd cheered them on. And finally, I got to not only see Robert Anton Wilson speak, but I got to hang out with him in the green room before his lecture, The backstage area was packed. There was Grant Morrison over on one side of the space holding court. And there was Are You Serious in another area chatting up some freaks. And lots and lots of people were walking through the zone. It was more like a party than a cloistered backstage area. There he was. I saw Bob Wilson seated on the edge of a couch, chain-smoking cigarettes, not talking to anyone. I approached the sage with nervous trepidation took out my copy of Illuminatus Trilogy and then asked him to sign it, which he did so happily. And then I listened to him tell me how he got such intense stage fright before all his talks, which was one reason why he smoked so many cigarettes. I couldn't believe that the guy who co-wrote Illuminatus experienced any sort of fright about anything because in my mind at the time, Robert Anton Wilson was as close to a superhero as one could get. Yet somehow, him admitting this to me, him sharing that one small sliver of vulnerability, made me think he was even cooler than I thought he was before the event. Wilson made me feel like a friend that day. Even though I was just a fan seeking an autograph, We shared a few jokes, had a couple laughs, he signed my book, and then I went off. And then he went on stage. It's safe to say that the Desinfocon of 2000 greatly altered the trajectory of my life. I don't know if I would have even written my forthcoming biography of Robert Anton Wilson if I had not attended this amazing event in the first place. Essentially, my book was born 23 years ago, that cold February day in New York city. And I have today's guest to thank for that. Mr. Richard Metzger. You were born in Cincinnati. Ohio. yeah.
1: No, no, I was, no, I I'm talking to you from Cincinnati, Ohio. I I live here now, but, um, I was born in Wheeling, West Virginia. Okay. When I was a kid, when I was a young, young kid, it was actually a bustling city. But by the time I was in my mid, early to mid teens, the, the there was a recession in the late seventies that just destroyed all of the business in that town and um, the coal mining and the steel mills and all that closed. So a, a town of like 56,000 became like a town of 20,000 almost, you know, within- you know, just like at the blink of an eye, but strangely enough um, uh, you could get a lot of weird media there. I, you know what I mean? Like you could, there was, there was a used bookstore there that I used to go to that, that only recently closed down, I guess, cause the, the owner died, but it was this um, weird, like it was like underground magazines and comics and used books right? The place was called The Ultimate Paradox, right? <laughs> but I could go in there and, and, you know, as like a 12-year-old and just like spend, like the ent- the guy wouldn't bother you. I could spend the entire day just like reading British rock magazines or Crawdaddy or, you know, Rolling Stone. But just, you know, there were just stacks and stacks and stacks of these things around. And, you know, you'd spend like a dollar and come out with like 10 old magazines, you know? I mean, that, that, that was like the kind of kid I was. And um, there was an amazing library there, where, um, I found in a a pre VHS era that I could rent or, you know, from the library I could, I could uh, check out, I guess, uh, Cult films like like I couldn't see Eraserhead on a in a movie theater anywhere you know within 200 miles of me, but I could get Eraserhead from the local library and watch it on a 16 millimeter projector in my parents' basement. You know, so I was like really resourceful about just sort of feeding my head, despite where I lived. You know what I mean? I was I think it made me more extreme, but I was like you know I would buy albums through um, mail order and stuff like that. Like I would do like go around and knock on my neighbor's doors when I was like a 10 year old and say, "I'll oh, weed your yard for 10 bucks or whatever. So I could buy, you know, an Iggy pop album that I would have read about in cream magazine, but never heard, mm-hmm. but I'd read the description of what it was like so that I would buy it through mail order. I mean, that's how complicated it was, mm-hmm. you know, in the seventies to get your hands on that kind of stuff.
0: When did you, I guess, first get hip. I was, I, I was a hip, extremely
1: hip kid. I mean, like it was, I would say, you know, I went from like, my interest went very quickly from like Batman to Planet of the Apes to James Bond to David Bowie, you know what I mean? And then William Burroughs and all of these things that were almost probably offshoots of being a Bowie fan.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that where it started? Do you think, do you think it all started with Bowie?
1: Um, to a certain degree, yes. I mean, I can remember being uh, eight or nine. Uh, you know, I don't know how old I was, but it was young. And they were there was a he, he did a midnight special, the 1980 floor show, right? And it was the last hurrah of the Ziggy Stardust character before he, you know, changed his look. You know, mm-hmm. and um, and I just remember watching that when I was a kid and just thinking, like, like you know, like when you when you're confronted with somebody like that for the first time. Right, and you know, especially at that age, it 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 showed me a lot of different things simultaneously. Like, you know, you can become whoever you want to be, being the the, the that main lesson. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you could you could change your identity into something like that, mm-hmm. in some way. And I thought that when, but that was you know, but that was it. But <clears throat> but but beyond that, it was you know, I mean, there was a, Bowie was always very. Um, you know, he would always talk about who influenced him. So, you know, when, you know, he did the interview with William Burroughs famously and, and, uh, I guess Rolling Stone. You know, so that, so, you know, it's it sort of comes in that way, you know what I mean? And then I become like a hardcore Burroughs head. And um, then I got really into Timothy Leary and the Fire Sign Theater. And, it, you know, so it was like that kind of thing. I was massively into Lenny Bruce when I was a kid. So, you know, it's a matter of like all of those things and you just keep going deeper and deeper, you know. But like I say, I could get underground magazines that were published in London in my hometown, in that one weird store, you know yeah so i mean so like you know but like i say but a lot of it i had i had access i had access to magazines that i guess that's a good way of putting it through the library through the fact that magazines like circus and cream were distributed to the extent that you could buy them in a grocery store and that's what i would i would stand there and you know read about lou reed while my mother was grocery shopping i mean so and so that was and but you couldn't hear the music you had to you know, especially if you're in a small town, you had to buy it first. And sometimes I go say buying it meant going to mail order as I had, you know, I had to do with these Iggy Pop albums,
2: Mm -hmm. but
1: I was like highly motivated to buy records and books. And uh, when I was a kid, and I would have jobs and, and do stuff like that. And, and um, I had like a serious record collection, you know, look, by the time I was in the sixth or seventh grade.
0: (laughs) Nice. Were you the kid that turned all the other kids on to the cool music then in your, in your little zone? Some of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I mean, I always had extremely snobby taste.
0: <laughs>
1: I was always very specific about what I, what I do and do not like, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So I'm just, I mean, if anything, I'm just an older version of what I, who I was when I was eight, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah. So no, but I, yeah, but that was my thing. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was underground culture and weird music, you know, cause it was like heyday of the post-punk era. I was massively into the Psychedelic Furs, Public Image Limited, mm-hmm. you Nina know, Hagen, mm. you know, things like
0: that. Interesting. That, that era of uh, the beginning of the fusion of sort of electronic music with the punk rock spirit. You're a young kid walking around West Virginia with all these crazy magazines. Uh, mm-hmm. You get into David Bowie and then Burroughs. Um, when did you get into Crawley? Very early
1: on. Mm-hmm. very early on i don't remember how th- that would have come about but i remember that i had read I, I was already into leary so maybe like 14 or something like that um but i, w- I remember um reading uh, leary first and then crowley because leary had said in one of his books that he felt that he was the reincarnation of crowley although they were obviously that doesn't sort of work out in temporal <laughs> terms because they were both alive at the same time but um But he but I remember him reading that. And then when I read the Crowley autobiography, I thought, oh, that's really interesting how, you know, I can see why Leary was so into this. But like I say, it it sort of transferred. So I was really into into Leary. And then I got really into Crowley through that. And then Mm -hmm. later to Bob Wilson.
0: Was it Burroughs that got you into Leary or was it just the fact that at the time he was an entity? He was a known entity.
1: Yeah, exactly. It, it, would, it would have been that. I mean, the again going back to these magazines that were available at that time. So you know, a magazine like Crawdaddy, right? You could in Crawdaddy, you could read. You know, the, the you could read about the the Firesign Theater and J- Jimmy Page is interviewed by William Burroughs, and that's on the cover. Mm. You know what I mean? And um, so, you know, it was it was that kind of thing or, you know, you would read about John Waters and, uh, and uh, people like that counterculture types were always represented in these magazines like Crawdaddy, which was a, a sort of a, a, you know, more out there version of Rolling Stone, maybe, you mm-hmm. know, it was like a news magazine, a rock magazine, but they were more underground, certainly than um, any of the other ones, even more so than cream mm-hmm. so in that way in that way and then but also keep in mind too that when we're the year that i'm we're talking about like you know leary's uh what's his book called um flashbacks turn Mm -hmm. on the shelf um would have come out and he would have been on like the today show publicizing Mm -hmm. that book you know i mean leary spoke at a local college um when i was a kid you know i I met him then you know
0: nice and was that in west virginia where he was
1: Wow. You know, yeah, it was uh, you know, West Liberty College. Mm-hmm. He spoke out about when he was talking when he was he, w- he did a rap about the uh, mind mirror software.
0: Mm-hmm. That being his the computer game that he had a part to play in in terms of creating. And it was supposed to implement his uh, eight circuit model of intelligence. Well, what did you think of Leary as a as a public speaker?
1: Well, OK, a, a couple of things. One is it didn't seem that interesting at all, uh, it, to be honest with you. and. um uh, Leary was a very bad public speaker in my right. opinion. If you listen to his speeches, sometimes he's on most of the time he is rambling he's he has a hard time making a point. he's you know he's undoubtedly got high. yes, you know, as, as I have done just before this interview. <laughs> but you know, but undoubtedly he was um you know quite stoned and it seemed that way. you know he's not he was never a, a particularly articulate public speaker, I never thought. And I've heard mm-hmm. him do so many speeches, mm-hmm. you know, so many times over the years.
0: So it's around seventh grade, maybe, that you, you, you find Crawley and, and uh, Wilson. A
1: little, a little you know. bit later than that. Okay. I actually went through an Ayn Rand phase when I was like about 13. Yeah. And then and, and, and as the ante, it's weirdly enough, the antidote to Ayn Rand was Herbert Marcusa for me. Because it was like I was massively into Ayn Rand, and to the point where I had collected all of those, her magazines and her newsletters. I had like cassette recordings. I mean, this is in the 70s, right? I had cassette recordings of her speeches and shit like that. You could order them from the back of her paperbacks. It's funny, too, because whenever I meet somebody who's into her, it's like and I criticize her and they say, yeah, but you haven't read it. It's like, oh, contraire, because I can I can to this day recite it like chapter and verse pretty much. I mean, I know it like that. But in one of her books, it's um, I think it's called The New Left, the anti-industrial revolution, just a Mm. collection of essays. But there's I don't know if she wrote it because there were other people who contributed to it, but she was so adamantly against Herbert Marcusa or they or whoever wrote it. So adamant, I thought, "Wow, this is like they're this guy is like Satan incarnate." What, what, how, what, how bad must his ideas be that it scares these people so? And then I read Herbert Marcusa, and after that, I was like, I was like very quickly on the road to like being a Marxist. You know what I mean? Like the Iron Rand like dropped, and then I would have like that's what I say. That's what I would have picked up on the Burroughs and the Crowley. It wasn't concurrent just after
0: what was the kind of pivot point then from Rand to the ideas of marcusa what what was it specifically maybe if you can recall that marcusa was laying down that 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 utopianism that utopianism
1: utopianism. Mm. utopianism as opposed to uh, laissez-faire capitalism mm. you know what i mean like i i mean as i was a kid in west virginia i one of those concepts was easy to understand but i.e. capitalism because you know you you know you're growing up in that scenario you know but yeah. the idea of the ut- it's it's utopian as mm. opposed to antagonistic in a sense way mm. of way of life for human beings
0: so i'm curious then too what was it about Rand that really uh captured your imagination was it her emphasis on the individual or what what was it exactly
1: i i think um well, I think it was because of the, um, you know, the heroics. I'm, I'm making air quotes as I say that to you, but uh, as the heroics of her fictional characters. John Galt. Yeah, that kind mm-hmm. of shit. That's I was great. was into her.
0: Yeah, well, she seems like sort of like a, like an intellectual that a lot of, uh, uh, you know, young thinkers kind of, um, you know, process through. So that's great, man. So you went from Marcuse to... To, uh, to, to Burroughs, to Leary, to... Uh, at what point did you come across Robert Anton Wilson then? Was that through reading Leary? The
1: thing to keep in mind is, is that those books were always around. Mm-hmm. So, if, like, if I, like, certain um, kids that I would have hung around with were, were really into Tom Robbins, Kurt Vonnegut, um, and the Illuminatus trilogy would have been a part of that. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's the literature that you know like the the really hip kids would have be reading Kurt Vonnegut you know what i mean was was huge then mm-hmm. it was like almost everybody who read, read Kurt Vonnegut. You know what I mean? It was like he, it was, it was mutually agreed upon. I mean, people don't remember that now or they're too young to, but, but I mean, like it used to be like you, every garage sale that you went to, there were like, you know, dozens of Kurt Vonnegut books for sale, right alongside of Jaws, The Exorcist, Fear of Flying, and The Godfather. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) they were like really widely read books. That, that was the sort of crossover, you know what I mean? Like the the kids who were into that, like they would also be into Illuminatus. And, and people who were also into like, you know, fan novels and stuff like that, because the way that it was marketed at the time. His books, um, Wilson's books were always uh, in the sci-fi
0: section. Where exactly did you find Illuminatus? say, for the the first time? The Mall in St. Clairsville, Ohio. How did you end up in New York City, man, from West Virginia to uh, to New York City?
1: Well, by by way of Amsterdam for six months and then for just under two years in London. And then I went to New York when I was 19. What brought you to, to Europe? I was like really convinced that the world was going to end at that time, <laughs> right? And I'll tell you why I thought that. It was because I had been fed a steady diet of books about the rapture and the book of revelations and all of that kind of stuff in my parents' church. Right. Mm -hmm. Always, you know, how Lindsay books, the late great planet Earth and all of these other, you know, these other sort of, you know, these again, these that, and that was a bestseller like Jaws or The Exorcist as well. You know, the late great planet Earth, these books sold massively at the time they were, you know, there would be a movie that Orson Welles would narrate. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, this Mm -hmm. this was like in the in the pop culture. You could buy those books or Chariots of the Gods. You could buy those at a Kroger. I was convinced the world was going to end. Right. and And this and. Uh, I, you know, public image limited was, I mean, I saw them live. It was so demonic. It was like, it was an utterly mind bending experience to watch them on stage. You know what I mean? I, it was funny. I later got to tell Keith Levine about my experience there, but as I was there, I was just like, fuck this. I'm not going to college. I'm just going to go and do something fun. And, and, and then that thought went to, well, where am I going to go? And then I was literally reading one of those like time life travel books in the, mm-hmm. in the in the library of my high school and I and I it said that pot was legal in Amsterdam. I thought wow, that's got to be awesome, right? And I was also really into Nina Hagen and her nonsex sex monk rock album is full of uh, these weird like evil, like mystical, you know, references to Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And so I thought oh that's where I'll go, you know what I mean? And nice. so th- I ended up, you know, being a squatter there. And then also in England and um, I went to live there I, it was because it, I, it didn't speak Dutch was one good reason, but um, I went, there was a woman involved, you know, with i uh, uh, I'd fallen for. Yeah. So that's how I ended up there. And then, and then after a while, I have to say London felt really small to me. I mean, that seems absurd to say that now, but at the, but 40, 38 years ago, you know, it's, it started to seem like, okay, I'm doing the same things. I'm seeing the same people that I, I just, I'm not, this isn't working out for me. Tr- try my luck in New York now. I mean, it was these, I mean, they were fairly whimsical decisions in a sense, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't, it, it, there wasn't like any grand plan of like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. It was just like, I just got there and I'll figure out what I'm going to do when I get there. Cause I, when I was a kid, it was like, I lived in a lot of different um, squats, you know, um, at one point I was in, um, two different squats actually um a blind butcher from uh, my bloody valentine her she was she had an infant son then and her boyfriend the father of the child was one of my best friends mm-hmm. you know what i mean so you know so there were you know you know, there was like an entire squatted apartment building in in the people nice. were living in but was that know, was, in london it was yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I squatted in, in amsterdam too
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Amsterdam kind of has that uh, legendary squat scene.
1: Well, uh, I, I, I stayed, right. yeah, well, I stayed for a while in the in the wires squat, which is the the legendary squat. Mm-hmm. I've seen that with my own eyes. It's th- that was an incredible thing. It's weird. It's like you look about th- that up online, and there's not that much documentation about it, right? Mm. But it was a squat that it was a massive, massive building that had been, I think two different factories were in this. It was like a, you know, it was like bigger than it was like a city block, but like a massive city block, you know, mm-hmm. and um, it had been taken over. And you, the idea was is that the the upper floors is where there were was hot water and there were more bathrooms because it was all communal. Mm-hmm. And, if, and if you were accepted in uh by the group, then you had to le- live on the first floor where there was no hot water and one bathroom and take cold showers. And then and when if place became available, a floor up. And people would literally just like brick off their, you know, they would brick off a little wall and, mm. and then with a door, you know what I mean? Like that was the scene there. So it was you know, so it was like a lot of punk rock kids and um, you know, people with like, you know, pet rats on their shoulders and stuff like that. You know, it was that kind of scene.
0: wild nice man so you're there for a couple years uh soaking up the amsterdam culture end up in london uh so are these sort of the squats that uh, in london that um you know the clash sang about were you in the sort of similar zones or take me to that to that scene now because squatting in london i don't know i haven't heard anything about it not in done anymore years. yeah i don't think
1: yeah, it's, it's not, impossible. it's yeah. not done anymore it's not done at all but it, i mean shot. yeah this was at the height of it say was the 70s into the early 80s and um uh, i squatted in an area called brixton south london and um there had been a lot of riots just before i got there the, the so-called brixton riots and that you can find a lot of documentation about that mm-hmm. um, but um, but there were tons and tons of squats. And um, it was because I was it's funny because I was actually I went to that neighborhood for the first time in 38 years where as many times as I've been to London since I lived there, I'd never gone back to Brixton. And then I thought, oh, that's going to be really fun and see how much it had changed. And it really, oddly enough, hadn't changed that much. I mean, it was more respectable than it had been then. And you know, there was less crime and uh, a, a lot more white people. But it was um, it hadn't changed as much as I thought it would have. Strange, mm. but, but but these places that had been squats were now you know eight hundred thousand dollar terrace homes, you know. So. Yeah,
0: and uh, yeah, Brixton as a neighborhood was that mostly like Jamaican uh, uh, residents and stuff like that. People, yeah, there?
1: It, it was. Yeah, I mean, I, I I can't. It's so long ago that I can't remember. I wouldn't. I I wouldn't dare like say what with a percentage, but it was probably more than half people from the West Indies, mm. and. And then, you know, and just like a lot of, like, there were a lot of squatters, you know what I mean? Like, but, but there were, um, there were a lot of Rastas. That was the, that was the thing that was noticeably different from 38 years ago. There were no Rastas, right? Whereas before, like, you remember these Eddie Grant songs, rock on down to electric Avenue and living on the front line, Mm -hmm. both of those songs reference Brixton, right? The electric Avenue is the first street in South London that had electricity. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was a known place where rastas would hang. And also the front line, which was Railton road. Right. And that one of the main streets going through Brixton and that whole, like when I remember at the time, it was like completely just a corrugated iron fence on one side of the street. And there were lots of security cameras. And then on the other side of the street was just dense with rastas who were like selling like dime bags and smoking joints openly and drinking beer playing basketball or soccer but but it was like you know it was just like a completely barren park with like no trees you know it was like very minimal you know and so i and i and that was like sort of the gauntlet that i had to to go to get home every day you know Mm -hmm. what i mean that could sometimes be a bit heavy Mm -hmm. you know Mm because i'm 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 a white american kid who's 17 you know what i mean but um yeah, that's what it, that's what it was like back then. But I asked that when I went there were no Rastas right when I went back and I asked my friend uh, Rod Stanley, who lived there for a while, like, what happened to all the Rastas? And he was like, oh, those guys may all made a fortune selling their houses and moved back to Jamaica. OK, but that's where they are.
0: Right on. You they know, was, it terrified. wasn't
1: even like you saw like an old guy with like gray dreadlocks we so were like no Rastas, whereas before it was like. You know, you could have been in Kingston, you know, for that, you know.
0: Heck yeah, man. And <laughs> what was the uh, <clears throat> what was your take on the counterculture scene in London at the time? Late 70s was.
1: No, this would have been like 83.
0: 83. OK. Um, yeah. yeah. What was your read of, of, of counterculture then? Were they similar? Was it a similar vibe as 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 the States? Because today it's basically global sort of culture, you know, so uh-huh. um, I know. In the 80s, it was very, it was still very distinct, yeah, between what people were perhaps into or what got represented. Like, what made it to, to London at the time from America? Uh,
1: well, I mean, I think in terms of counterculture, the thing that was, you know, the, what's homegrown versus, you know, somebody like Burroughs coming in and doing a reading it. Like, there was a bookstore, famous bookstore in Camden called Compendium Books. And that was the place where, you know, if Burroughs was going to come through town. He would read there. You know, Leary or anybody of of note who was kind of an intellectual would read there. You know, it was a that was a meeting point for a lot of people gravitated towards that bookstore. And so there was that. But the I would say that the homegrown counterculture at the time, you know, there's I mean, the thing about it, there was there was a hell of a lot of music going on, obviously. But but the thing that I would say is, is that straddles like, you know, it's counterculture and punk was crass. That was like the thing. I mean, I would not. I would not say that I myself was a crass punk because I think that implies the uniform and living fairly crusty, but I was
0: like kind of the gutter punk uh, uh, representation of punk rock and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I was crass punk adjacent right? Like I was massively into them. I was like a vegetarian, you know, vegan at the time, you know what I mean? I was really into like raw food when I was that age. And, um, that was a thing. And there was a, there was an event that happened where well, they, they did it twice, but there it, it was known. If you, you look this up, it's generally thought of as being the first anti-globalist demonstration of any note of any size. Right. And it was called stop the city. Right. Okay. And It was this thing where it was just like, it was like basically just sort of whispered about, oh, stop the city, stop the city. People were just talking, are you going to go to stop the city or whatever. And, but that in within that, you know, sort of squatter's circle, as it were, you know, I mean, the people that you would know socially, they were a lot of them were really into crass. And so this was a known event, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, so, and I So it basically, it was like show up at, in, the, in the city of London, which is to say the financial district, right, around Threadneedle Street, and, um, you know, show up and we're going to stop capitalism from operating for a day. Mm-hmm. I, and I got that. And I remember going into a, a, some place to buy something and there was almost no one there and then walking out of the store and suddenly there were hundreds of people, you know, as the French say, it was like a manifestation. Mm-hmm. You know? And um, it, there were quite a few thousand people who showed up and, um, you know, basically just menaced stockbrokers and bankers and, you know, things like of that nature, you know, was just, you know, I mean, if you look at the, the any existing film and video, and there is some, there's a little bit of it, um, you know, you just sort of see kids giving, you know, guys in suits hard times. Right. <laughs> but there were a lot of, but there were a lot of bodies. There were an awful lot of bodies there and it probably did stop some stuff from going on. Who knows? But um, anyways, I was, ended up being caught up in, in a, a, what the, what's called bottling, right? The where the or kettling, right. Mm-hmm. Where start moving you. The cops just keep moving the barriers closer and closer until they compress an awful lot of people into a very small area. And then they hold you there until they are good and sure that you need a piss. And then they will let you dribble out and go find a place to relieve yourself. But that was like, you know, so like that day, I, you know, so I was in the middle of that kettling effort on Threadneedle street. When I was a kid, the, I read the, the British comedian, David Bediel was also there.
0: You got your first taste of sort of a anarchy in the streets, I suppose. Uh the stop the city uh, demonstration of sorts. I mean
1: that that was the thing, is that kind of stuff was going on a lot. I mean, I mean to it now to it as an American, you know, especially somebody from you know a small town like I was, it Britain seemed like it was falling apart. Like there was a potential for like a real revolution to happen there. Mm-hmm. That seems laughable now. But at the time, there's like the miners' strike and you know, just punk rock. And there was just a lot of, you know, people were up in arms about, you know, a lot of things, living conditions, being on the dole. Mm-hmm.
0: Maggie Thatcher in general. When did you end up in New York?
1: Mm-hmm. The very end of 1984. A weird story that I can tell you about my first night in New York City. Nice. I moved to New York and I moved there with a friend of mine. And so like he had a car, right? So we like we put all of our shit in the car and I moved to New York that way. And um, we, you know, basically found a super cheap hotel room, you know, listed in the uh, Village Voice. Threw our shit down and went out, right? Mm-hmm. So let's go out and do something fun, right? And I'd heard about danceateria, right? And I wanted to go there. Okay, let's go. And it it opened at like eleven, mm-hmm. or like ten thirty. It was open. And I didn't realize that no, that you know, no one is going to show up until after midnight at all. There's going to mm-hmm. be no one there. So we probably got there at like eleven o'clock or something like that. And um, there, you know, and tr- there was no one there. And then a few people came, and we ended up uh, having a chat with this guy. It was this like really good-looking black guy in all leather? He had like leather pants and leather jacket, and he had this like uh, beautiful blonde Swedish girl with him. And he basically, you know, said, hey, I've I've got like a lot of coke with me. Do you want some coke? And so the next thing I know, I've got this like brown paper bag, you know what I mean? With like a a serious amount of cocaine in it. And um, and then so we're doing that and then people start to show up and none other than Michael Eilig later you know the the subject of the party monster
0: yeah, the party kid uh, uh, raver that that uh you know, I guess murdered a friend of his on a on a on a bad K trip, I guess you could you could say and then left the body and <laughs> chopped up the body and left it in his apartment for a few days or something yeah that's 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 the guy
1: mm-hmm. but at the time he was uh, he was young I mean he um Michael would have been a first year student at Fordham anyways, he was there. And his um, this this female friend of his, and um, they were like, "Oh, da, da da Tonight is an opening at Area. Do you want to go?" And I'm like, "I have never heard of this nightclub," but I'm like, "Fuck yeah!" And then he it's, it's explained to me that you know in the cab that this nightclub changes its decor every six weeks, it's a new theme, you know, it can be religion or isolation or, you know, a, a color or, you know, nature, whatever. And then they would, they would do it literally from there, from there. were a lot of like, uh, as you walked in, there was this long hallway full of these like rooms that were like glass, almost like you were in a zoo. Mm-hmm. Right. And sometimes famous people would be in some sort of tableau doing that. You know what I mean? Like Fellini had his birthday party there. And they had a a bunch of girls as Venus in the half shell, you know, sort of uh, greeting him. But um, uh, anyway, so it it, it was like, okay, they're telling me about about this thing. And so it was the opening night of their religion theme. And so we got out of a cab and, you know, right in front, you know how that trick works. And the crowd parts and we literally like, I'm, you know, I'm this kid from nowhere with these two other kids. And it was just like, we like got in for free and everything. I have no idea why, but this happened. But as we were walking in, I looked down the street and there was a, there was a, a group of people marching towards the nightclub down Hudson Street. And they were holding a guy on a cross who had flaming arrows in his stomach, right? And he, that was a performance artist by the name of Bernard Zett. And he was brought in and uh, put into, the cross was put into a pool that had sharks in it. Lovely. What kind of nightclub this was, but anyways. <laughs> so the point of this story, and, and and the reason why it has some significance is Andy Warhol is there, right? There were a lot of famous people there. It was like Joan Rivers and the B-52s and the Psychedelic Furs and Allen Ginsberg and Philip Glass. I mean, there were like a lot of like, that club attracted a lot of very famous faces. And there were always a lot of them at any given time. So you could like look around the room and see all these kind of people. Anyways, Andy Warhol was there, right? And Michael Alig says to me, oh, do you want to meet Andy? I'm like, Fuck yeah. Right. And he takes a, he starts, he, as we're walking, he takes a running start and with both hands shoves me from behind into Andy Warhol, who I knock on his ass. Okay, <laughs> Now he saw that happen and he did not address his anger towards me, but towards Michael, he was pissed off. He had every right to be, mm-hmm. but, but that happened like a, you know, like a, 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 a a famous a murderer to be on my first night in New York city pushes me into Andy Warhol in the Aryan nightclub.
0: Did you get to speak with him at all Warhol or was it after that? No, that God, like... no, no. I mean, I,
1: I saw him around parties after that, you know, or were events or whatever, but, uh, uh, until he died, but, uh, no, I never talked to him after that. <laughs> I mean, that was the, I mean, like if you if you were at a party and Warhol was there and Mick Jagger and you know top supermodels, you knew you were in the best. And you're in New York City. You knew you were in the best place to be in the world that night. Mm-hmm. There was nothing else that was going on that was cooler than that kind of thing. You know, it was weird. And when Warhol died, it was like this vortex, just like like this like this all of that energy just got sucked out of New York City. It was. It was. There's almost like a like a an a you know B C A D type of like demar line of demarcation in New York's cultural life, especially New York nightlife. When did
0: Warhol die? What year do you know?
1: I think eighty seven. Mm. And after he goes, it it becomes very like Beastie Boys slash hip hop. Mm-hmm. Whereas prior to that, it was like this kind of sophisticated art scene, you know. You know, pe- people who did things for a living. You know what I mean, like who were like real artists, real magazine publishers, real writers. You know what I mean, like people that you knew and you read about were out and about, and that just stopped after that, and it, it became, like I say, hip hop and also club kids, mm-hmm. and and that was just a big turnoff for a lot of people. So the the nightlife just sort of changed quite a bit. Like I say, when Andy Warhol died, it was it was definitely something that that happened, if you will.
0: So, um, you know, from eighty eighty when when you first arrived, say in eighty four to you mm-hmm. know number of years that you're there. Then mm-hmm. what um what were some other kind of you know personal landmarks for you along the way to 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 this event, to this great disinfo conference of two thousand? You know, like this this uh, interesting collection of of artists, performers, speakers, intellectuals, musicians that you you were able to gather and corral for that event. So you had the idea for the Disinfo Conference, but you were also working on multiple fronts. Like because Disinfo was, it eventually became a website, but before then it was a TV show. Like I'm just no, curious. No,
1: no, it was it was a website first, mm-hmm. and and uh, the, it was uh, infamously funded by John Malone and TCI, and they had no idea. What their money was going towards or that over a million dollars had been spent on what Malone called anarchist bullshit when he finally saw it. And um, that I retained the control of that uh, copyright and the URL and it sort of turned into a business after that and uh, did publishing web stuff. Um, movie distribution into theaters and also theatrical uh in uh, theatrical documentaries and um DVDs so that was that was the mainstay of it and then I did a television show in t- that I shot in 1999 and it aired in 2000 and then I shot another series after the DisinfoCon that aired in 2001 that oh. was for, that was for channel 4 in great britain
0: so so the website starts uh what about when it was 19 i got a job working for a
1: place called and interactive and right and that was those were the initials for the three guys who started it and um uh they were doing you know like cd roms and stuff like that and then the idea of oh here's the internet and then the one of these guys was extremely good slick dude, smart as hell and he was very good at at giving a very convincing speech that convinced you know some very wealthy people to invest in him. Right? So I would say that I probably was one of maybe the first dozen people to have a job, like a job job where you're getting paid every week and taxes taken out to produce web content. And mm-hmm. um that is where disinformation as a website was developed. But before that it was developed as a TV series idea that Oliver Stone was going to executive produce. Hmm. And tell me
0: about that. What was that uh, sort of idea? Was that what became disinformation that the TV show that later aired on channel four? No, no,
1: not at all. No. The original idea was to do something that was like a straight up um, 60 minutes type documentary series (laughs) for like a network. It was the era of like Twin Peaks and where they were looking for something like that. You know what I mean? Like, and so the idea of having Oliver behind it seemed, I, I thought it seemed like a highly attractive package, but it was to do, you know, what I would say would be like 90s conspiracy theory culture where, you know, like, anti, like CIA stuff or, you know, things that could be proved, not just not wild stuff, but things that you know, historically happened, mm-hmm. you know, or things that were current. That were going on you know like it be like a really like but coming from the the point of view of like maybe a, a magazine like covert action if you know what that is right, right. Yeah,
0: yeah yeah covert right. action just being that sort of magazine for people into espionage or whatever things like that
1: well, well more like anti it
0: yeah know? right like sure
1: try to understand mm-hmm. it and expose it and mm-hmm. you know but it was so it was that kind of it was that kind of thing and then it, that got made into the website ultimately wow right I got that job that I was just describing through Oliver's patronage.
0: Okay, how'd you meet? Uh, how'd you meet uh, the legendary Oliver Stone? How did you guys come um, each other? Cold facts, just a
1: cold fact. Saying, "Here's this idea. I'd love for you to put your name on it." And I got a call back the next day.
2: Mm. From his
1: business partner Janet Yang saying he is shooting in Vietnam, but he's into this and he wants to meet with you. Wow. He's going to be back in about two or three weeks. That was, that was, that's how
0: that happened. What year was that around? 1991. 91. So this is when JFK came out around that time. Yeah. It was after that. So this is, this is peak Oliver Stone. This is. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. He was at the height of his power and as a director and as a cultural, you know, force. Mm-hmm. And this Hollywood force, you know what I mean? I, it, I mean, it's too bad that it never happened. The, the two of the um, agents, who we had a meeting with because they wanted, they were trying to lure him over to what I think to CAA and he was with somebody else at the time, but it was, it was the two guys who had sold Twin Peaks. Mm, And those guys were not able to move it even to, to try to get him as a client. They couldn't, you know what I mean? Like that's, but it's like I say, it seemed like a good idea at the time, you know?
0: For sure. Yeah, man, that's amazing. And um, so that becomes uh, eventually, disinfo.com which which yeah. launched, did now when did the the website launch about I
1: I think it launched in September early September of nineteen ninety six that's but, early web well it is but here's the funny thing about that right it was so early that it got immediate it had a t- shit ton of traffic like instantaneously but there was one thing that I did that I will. that was very, very smart, if I do say so myself. Was that I convinced the the powers that be at TCI or you know their subsidiary to buy six months of advertising on the Netscape browser, right? And I put a search engine with, you know, just all left wing websites. Where only things that were spidered were the things that I personally chose. And this, you know, this again, this is '96, so there wasn't a whole hell of a lot. Mm-hmm there anyways but i wanted to just you know it was a search engine for alternate information that was kind of how it built itself it's the original incarnation but because it was a search engine it allowed us to have the 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 logo which at the time was an eye in a triangle right in color on the same page as yahoo and NetSearch and whatever the, whatever the other ones were at the time, Ask Jeeves. I don't remember what they were, mm-hmm. AltaVista, you know, and that there was the Netscape search page. And for a lot of people, that was their homepage. That was the thing that when you got someone to set up your computer for you, you know, in a store, they set it to that. Mm-hmm. You're on the Netscape browser, it goes to the Netscape homepage, and boom, there on, is my logo. So I had a tremendous amount of traffic right off the bat and I, the reason that I was so insistent that they do that was also, I was, a, I wanted to make sure that they were all in financially. Hmm. you know what I mean? So there was several hundred thousand dollars that were spent on that buy. So I thought, okay, this is another way to keep it going. They're going to launch it. You know what I mean? So it was, it was like a, it was a high wire act for a while, but it launched and, and, um and it got a lot of attention. And when uh, I, I was written up in, in a lot of these, like, you know, then, you know, uh, internet industry magazines and the guy, you know, the guy whose money it was, or his John Malone saw it and he was not happy. Mm-hmm. So it was back to me and then, then developed independently by me and my former business partner, again, as a publishing company, DVD, you know, events, um, television production. Mm-hmm. so forth.
0: And then the disinfonation was airing uh midnight nineteen ninety nine into the new millennium, correct? And uh
1: it was it literally was I think it started on New Year's Eve, if I'm not mistaken. Awesome. No, no, it did not on New Year's Eve. It was like the New Year's Day. Okay. Yeah, it was New Year's Day because it what sucked is I had done a a Y2K piece thinking that it was going to air earlier than it did end. And and so the piece was kind of neutered of its humor. By the fact that it was already passed.
0: Right. Yeah. And nothing happened. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly.
0: What how did you gather the you know the troops for that? Um, did were these relationships that you had cultivated years before, for instance? Did you know Doug Rushkoff beforehand? I know you knew Bob Wilson beforehand. Uh, I'm pretty sure you knew Genesis Peorage beforehand. Uh, did you know more Graham Morrison beforehand? Did you know Kembra uh, Favler, uh beforehand? um who 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 Kembra kind of her and her her band kind of stole the show at this info um i don't know if that was ever recorded her her performance it's,
1: oh it's on the dvd and it was in the tv show
0: okay okay awesome yeah the wall of vagina the wall of vagina like legendary mind-blowing amazing art like for for listeners there, like Kembra Favler and, and her band, like they 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 wear a full body paint, magenta, dark red, blue, turquoise, or purple body paint. Huge That's sort of blue, blue and red, blue and red. Her band mates, I suppose, they're all naked, and then like four, three or four of the ladies like laid on top of each other with their legs spread, and uh, Kembra did her thing uh, with a turkey baster and white paint and just slathered it everywhere and uh and i just remember the crowd was like shocked and amazed and loving it and it was beautiful and it was awesome and then and then you came on stage introducing robert anton wilson here to pull the cosmic trigger one more time and then old bob saunters over and just looks at the crowd with a with a uh, bedazzled look and just says i don't know how to follow that yeah You know, and uh, quintessential Wilson humor, you know, uh, what a great night that was, man. I mean, did you feel it there? Like, when did you know, you know, because I know during an event, it's very difficult. There's so many things that you have to take care of. You have to make sure all the the artists are okay. So it's Mm -hmm. difficult to really enjoy the moment. When did you get to sit back, smoke a joint and be like, fuck, yeah, that was awesome.
1: When it was over. (laughs) During Bob's thing, during Bob's thing, because you're right. I was completely stressed out. I didn't eat. When I don't eat, I start to get like uh, migraines. Right. And um, so it was just, it was like that kind of thing, but yeah, it was, and there were just, I was just doing this, doing that, just making sure that things went along, people wanting to talk, whatever. So I didn't really get to enjoy that much of it. There were certain things that I didn't see at all, Mm. you know, Like, I I saw, uh, you know, uh, Doug was the keynote. I saw Doug's speech in in its entirety. Mm -hmm. And I think that might have been it, to tell you the truth, until Bob's, you know. I I, I mean, like, I didn't even get to witness Kenneth Angers until it was on video later, you know. Mm -hmm. But in answer to your earlier question, I knew all of these people. I mean, uh, with the exception of Kenneth Anger, who I didn't know, um, I was very good friends with everybody in this who was in it. Um. Uh. I mean, uh, Doug is one of my closest friends. You know what I mean. I. Uh. Genesis and I were very good friends. Uh. Paul Laughly and I were very good friends. Joe Coleman and I were very good friends. Grant Morrison and I were very good friends. You know. So I knew everybody there, and I. And I also. And I. I knew Bob fairly well at that point too, because I. I met him several times over the years at. You know his shows. You know his his talks at in L.A. and stuff. But um, I'd also, I'd interviewed him already for the, for the channel four show. So I, you know, I knew him at that point pretty well. I'd spent a a fair amount of time interviewing him, talking to him on the phone or being there with him.
0: And so the motivation behind it, I mean, this was your, your baby, right? This was, did, what made you want to throw this event? I don't think it was my idea. I think it was
1: Mm -hmm. my former business partner's idea. I think he, he was basically saying, we've got all of this money, i.e. this razorfish.com money that was invested into our brand, right? Let's use it. You know, let's do an event. And then my thought was, oh, what about an event, you know, knowing fully well, that I could get all of these people who we've just talked about with one phone call and it's done, you know, and they're happy to do it, you know? And, um, and I know that it's going to be great. I mean, it was like, you know, it was just like, it wasn't like that list of of people was like agonized over or really like thought about, you know what I mean? I wish I, in retrospect, I would have added more women to it. But um, at the time, I think we contacted Lydia lunch and Diamonda Gallus and neither one of them could do it, mm. you know, but, um, but it, it, it ended up being like a, 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 aside from Kembra and, and Magnuson a sort of a bit of a boys club. So there was a bit of regret there, but, but, but in any case, it, it wasn't like we sat around and thought, Oh, who can we get? It was like, Here's the list. You know what I mean? It was like, it was just off the top of my head in five minutes. Here's the list, you know? And um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, like I say, it was, they were all friends, you know, but it was Gary's idea. And, and what, and, and uh, what, um, what I thought, okay, why don't we do this? Like the Nova convention, you know, the, the, the thing that was a a, cel- a two, I think it was a two day celebration of the work of William Burroughs that Robert Anton Wilson and Timothy Leary and Patty Smith and Brian Geison and a whole bunch of it was sort of all these counterculture luminaries either gave a speech or they did a reading or they were on a panel and then you know and you know where there was some kind of you know musical entertainment you know whatever and so I thought oh let's
0: just model it after that and that's what we did do you know that's great so that was the reference point for you personally the the Nova Convention absolutely. Yeah and it was uh that great kind of punk rock celebration of William S Burroughs who in the 70s was you know considered in many ways a godfather of punk rock you know uh from Lou Reed to Patti Smith to Mick Jagger David Bowie they all sort of applied his cut up method to certain songs and whatnot and course he was huge at that time and uh, as you mentioned robert anton wilson spoke at the nova convention and uh, you said in a previous interview with uh doug rushkoff on team human about how uh burroughs you know when, when buckminster fuller was alive everyone knew about him but when he died he the the, the signal went dead he, no yeah. one really knows about him and almost the same with tim leary but uh Robert Anton Wilson is a slightly different case, though, you know, like, would you would you kind of categorize him in a certain sense with Burroughs as there's this voice that continues from the grave with with uh, with Wilson? You know, um, what is it about about Wilson like Burroughs in a way that why is his voice still relevant today if you think it is relevant at all?
1: Oh, no, I do. I definitely do. I think both of them are very relevant. I don't know if I, I, I have a, a, a concise answer to that one, though. I mean, you yeah. know, it's 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 it. There, it, it it. If you are interested in learning how to think, both of those writers have got something for you. If you're learning how to, you know, to change your mind or to, you know, get involved with magic or you know, you know, there's there's a lot of deep ideas there to uh, mull over.
0: Yeah, man, and 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 you know, one of the um most interesting metaphors, I suppose, at least that I found about Wilson, that that is very. You know, prescient or, or, or relevant for today is the whole notion of the chapel perilous, right? Mm-hmm. This yeah. sort of journey through a type of madness to come out the other side, hopefully a, a better, uh, you know, more calm and 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 uh, agnostic sort of thinker. Um uh and when I was writing my book about Bob, right, Chapel Perilous, I, I asked awesome people if they themselves had experienced their own sort of chapel perilous moments right and uh when we were speaking at a previous time uh you told me this pretty amazing story about your own journey through chapel perilous or a type of chapel perilous if you recall it was uh i think you said you were um you're 29 you were in a super uh terence mckenna mode you were living in new york city working at the paramount hotel and smoking dmt four times a day uh (laughs) yes
1: yes that's all true
0: (laughs) um you know, very quickly, what, what could you say you learned from from that sort of experience and your time dealing with those?
1: Well, I mean, when, you, when you're talking about Chapel Perilous, you're talking about the concept of initiation, right? You're talking about, you know, which I think Wilson covers the best, not even in the necessarily in the Cosmic Trigger, but in The Mask of the Illuminati. You know, that's, I mean, that is what that, that is an initiation story. You know what I mean, and it shows you. I mean, I th- I think that's actually his best book in many ways. Um, but um, you know, it's initiation that we're talking about, right? And so I think that you know, and I think it's something that goes on for your lifetime, also. But um, you know, for me, I started getting involved in the occult, you know, interested in that from my interest in Crowley and Kenneth Anger and things like this. But but it's it, it's it wasn't nece- it wasn't an interest that ever went away for me, right? But it became a much greater concern of mine in my late 20s. And um, I found that at the time, my the I had, I had achieved some level of success in my mid-20s that by my late 20s had already, it was in the rearview mirror, you know, and I was working at a hotel. I fucking hated the job and, um, you know, it was a drag and I, uh, I, uh, the, I, a friend of mine had a steady source of like really good DMT, and I was really in, a, in a, like I say into a Terrence McKenna mode at the time, and so I was smoking DM con, DMT constantly, and I was constantly having really strange coincidences happen to me, right? And it wasn't like I was looking for them, but I would notice them when they happened, right? You know, and um, and and one of those coincidences actually does involve the cosmic trigger. so it's it's very you know, it's, it's, it's to the point. I'm going to actually show you this in a second, but I, um, I, cause I have, I have all the receipts for this story I'm about to tell you. Um, so, okay. So that, it's like Thanksgiving weekend and I'm at this staying at the hotel and they're like, do you just want to stay in the hotel, g- get a room here and stay for like four days because a lo- there's a lot of people want to take off and you get paid overtime and blah, I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah. So I was staying there. And there was a, I was the, I was the, like the maitre d', the concierge rather. And um, so I was there behind that desk. And if people got mail, I would give it to them and I would make reservations for them for their hotel, and every for the restaurants and stuff like that, or buy them tickets for Broadway shows and whatnot. Anyways, there was, there were, there was a dude who worked there who was a, like a bellman, right. And he was this tall, like super good looking sort of male model, like sort of what I assumed to be a himbo sort of type guy. And I never really said anything to him other than, Hey man, what's up? And, you know, just passing him by. And so that Thanksgiving night, it's probably about one 30 in the morning. Right. And he walks up to me and says, Hey man, do you want to smoke a joint? I'm like, fuck yeah. So we go into the basement of the Paramount hotel, which was a, which had been a speakeasy. So you get down there and there's literally like, it was, you know, it's like a nightclub that is just covered in dust. You know, it's like, you know, booths and mirror balls. And, you know, it was it had been a bit of speakeasy, you know, and during Prohibition and um, but a really opulent one. But again, just covered with dust at this point. So we're down there. We're smoking this joint. And I've got um, I also had weed, weed on me. Right. And so I had in my, my bag, but in my bag, because I was staying there for four days, I had a bunch of books that I was reading. One of them was Terrence McKenna. Uh, one of them was Crowley. And one of them was The Cosmic Trigger, right? And this guy who I'm talking to, his name was uh, uh, Jason. He was saying, oh, yeah, I've read this book. He's like, I sold this to the bookstore that I was working at right before I left L.A. And I said, what bookstore was that? And he said, oh, the brand bookstore in Glendale. I said, well, that's where I bought this. And then here is the book. You just have to, if you're listening to this, you just have to pretend. And uh, there's his name. Wow. Right? They wrote his name in it, so they knew it was his book. So when it sold, you know, he got, he was, he got more money, I guess, because he was an employee there. It. Okay. I had, I literally and a book, of, it's a book about crazy coincidences. Right. Boom. There it is. Right. Isn't Unbelievable. That, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so, you know, so that's, but you know, those kind of things happen, have happened to me my entire life. But And that's a very specific one. I'll tell you one more, right? That That's like that. And again, I don't think these things ever add up. And again, I don't look for them. But I notice when they happen, how can you not, right? Here's the story. One day I am, it's New York, it's like 1988 maybe. And I'm in the front room of this apartment that I'm living in and I'm cleaning up my bookshelves and I've got stacks of magazines that I'm going through. I'm just cleaning up. And there's an eight by 10 glossy, of an ex-girlfriend of mine, like a headshot, laying on top of the stack. And my then current girlfriend, who I was living with, comes into the living room and she points to that and she says, who is this? I know her. And I said, that would be impossible for you to know her because the whole time she had gone to school in London, This my present girlfriend at the time, mm-hmm. whereas this British girl was living with me in New York. Okay. Right. She was a very uptight person and when she sublet her apartment in the UK she said I'm going to pay a certain amount of money no one can sleep in my room right she had this amazing apartment and um so no one can sleep in my room and she was the type who would like anyways but that was like that was the deal I'm paying rent no one sleeps in my room no one can ever sleep in my room okay so anyways she and I got into this big fight in New York City and she was going to go back anyways. And we were already breaking up, but it was like, okay, I'm leaving early. Mm-hmm. So she leaves early and goes back to London. In London, the guy who was her roommate or whatever sublease E was letting his girlfriend and another girl stay in the house because their lease had run out and they needed a month before they went back to New York. Is oh, you just stay with me, right? She'll never use her room. She's in New York. She's not coming back until X day. Well, anyways, she knocks on the, she goes into her bedroom to find this girl sleeping in her bed and has a proper freak out. And right. And so, but anyway, she was like, I, but I was like, well, and she comes back in and she was like, and she reads me this woman's address from her address book. And it was her address, right? Dig it. So dig it. So a woman goes from my bed, literally (laughs) my bed, in New York City, to her bed, where my next girlfriend is sleeping, and th- I mean, think about that for a second. I mean, it's too much. I mean, I mean, it's too specific, right? And, and and then weirdly enough, the um, the other girl who was staying there had the same birthday as me, right? Mm. And then even weirder that there's a part two of this is that same girlfriend and I were walking around the East Village when her mother came to visit and her mother had been, I guess, kind of a groupie. And um, she was living with Don Preston from the Mothers of Invention in the 60s. when The mothers were playing in New York. They had a residency there for a whole summer and she was living with Don Preston and we're walking down St. Mark's Place and she was like, oh, this is the building where I used to live. And I said, that's funny. I used to live in this building. We lived in the same. I lived in the same apartment as the mother of a future girlfriend of mine. Twenty years before, she lived there. Twenty years before I did. I mean, I mean, did, did, was this woman the love of my life? No. Did there was there any significance to end this? Not that I'm aware of. It doesn't add up to anything. Mm. I, but I could, I could, I could waste your time all day telling you crazy coincidence stories that are literally that specific. Mm-hmm. You know, they're literally that specific.
0: It's really interesting, too, like just the topic of synchronicity, right, which is a meaningful coincidence, something that's a causal. It doesn't seem like it's caused by A, B or C. It's A somehow causing D. And it's just very weird and strange. And when people experience these things, it leaves an impression, obviously, because it's a, a personal significance and meaning. But um, it's interesting to think about, like, you know, Wilson's book which came out in 77 was uh, really forwarded or put the notion of synchronicity into the counterculture uh, as did other things after that, other books and writers and stuff. But Mm -hmm. we live in such an interesting age now where um, you know, I know that in Cosmic Trigger, one of the synchronicities that Wilson writes about is how he was writing about Sirius and then all of a sudden um, he saw the cover of a magazine and there was a band called Ramsey's, which uh, somehow reminded him of the band in his book, Illuminatus Trilogy, the American Medical Association, which were the, you know, the front group of the Illuminati who were going to uh, kill millions of people at a rock festival in Ingolstadt, you know um and uh so so Bob was finding all these things that seemed to mean so much for him uh through sometimes the media and many oftentimes The media, right? We live in this age now where uh, thanks to uh, uh, surveillance capitalism and your computer and phone passively listening to everything you say all the time, you know, you could talk about how you have a backache and then two minutes later, get a get a commercial on YouTube, uh, you know, uh, advertising like a back cushion or something like that. Or you have to this happened to me the other day or just yesterday. I was speaking about how I need to get an oil change for my car. Two minutes later, uh, an internet commercial on YouTube came up for Vavilene, right? Uh, Maybe 50 years ago. That would have been a synchronicity. Right. But now um, I guess what I'm getting at is we now live in this age of manufactured synchronicities. In fact, that could even be a type of advertising campaign because, you, you know, you you, uh, yeah. you you get into people's minds best when they're unaware of it, I suppose. Right. But um,
1: it's up, it's updating Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent.
0: So another question is, you know, Wilson, at least I got this from him when reading those books and all of his work, is that when you're experiencing synchronicities, it might be a sign that you're kind of on the right track, correct? Like you're kind of oh. receiving a message from your inner, higher, whatever, deeper self communicating to you. So where do you file sort of synchronicities these days, Richard?
1: Well, I mean, it, it in two ways. One is, like I said before, I don't I don't look for them I notice them when they happen you know what I, mean? I think that it, uh, I interviewed um, a lot of people for this I just I'm doing a uh, working on a, an occult TV show right now where I interviewed 53 occultists you know uh, which awesome. is so forth about this and and Gary Lackman um the author Gary Lackman had a, he was saying that you know there's a it's it's a there's a resonance between the inner and outer worlds where it's, where what you are thinking about, or what you want seems to be known and understood by some entity that, which is outside of you that can, you know, and so, and, and then, so he says that, but, and that that magic is, is making synchronicities happen. You know, it's, it's, it's induced synchronicity. Right. And uh, Christina Oakley Harrington um, who uh, owns the um, Treadwells bookstore in London said that you know that she considers the magic and witchcraft that she's involved with is making the less likely more likely and that you know when and and as she says when someone talks about a coincidence and someone says oh what a coincidence she says yes that's us that we we work with synchronicity we work with coincidence you know and so i think there's that but but also, I think what you were describing before about how you know an algorithm is just going to pick up your thing, and it's not like oh, I was just thinking about Lou Reed, and you know, or I just wrote about Lou Reed in my email, in my Gmail account. Here is it. Um, but um, uh, there is a woman, uh, an author named Sarah Lyons, and she says that really the mark of a good mystic is when y- you know how to walk the line between you know the cluttered nonsense of the universe and something real and tangible that whereas the universe wanting to speak with you i, I also think just to finish my think mm-hmm. I, I, a lot of the synchronicity stuff also i think there's if, if if so if one were to study crowley's interest in the holy guardian angel and the the sacred uh, magic of abramel and the mage and why that was interesting to him i there's a lot of overlap there between the holy guardian angel and the way that you would have that knowledge and conversation of said holy guardian angel and synchronicities happening to you and weird coincidences
0: right and this too then being a major part of uh cosmic trigger volume one where uh wilson was kind of uh deconstructing this notion and and getting under the hood if you will of of uh how to contact your holy guardian angel right so where the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel is, a, is, uh, I guess its origin story, if you will, is that the book uh, Sacred Magic of Abramelin the Mage, right? In the 16th century, 1600s, and how uh, uh, an, a magician is supposed to uh, cloister oneself for six months and, you know, adhere to like a strict diet and do all these uh, magical rituals. And then uh, along comes Crowley uh, uh, many years later, and he attempts the the that exercise right um uh it if doesn't work out right he does he seeks to do the whole six months in his in that uh mansion or whatever in in uh northern england right and then it's during his walk in china uh where he i guess he imagines the temple in his own mind and um i guess he creates uh his his book liber Semec from that um which becomes sort of a condensed version of the 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 ritual for contacting one's mm-hmm. holy guardian angel, I suppose, right? And then occultists seek they use Crawley's version or program or or you know, to contact, say, to have that contact, which it seems like the the occultist Carl Germer uh, used Crawley's liber sumach when he was in a concentration camp to achieve his knowledge and conversation with the holy guardian angel. Right. But then along comes Robert Anton Wilson in 1970s, who, who, who kind of hacks the system a little more and and has this huge, which he says was his contact with the holy guardian, his holy guardian angel was during basically like a a large acid trip in, in a darkened bedroom. And he's listening to, to audio tapes of John C. Lilly and Crawley's, I, I guess it was, well, the, the bornless one, uh, uh, in, invocation, which maybe is part of Liber Samech. I'm not a hundred percent, but my point is, isn't it interesting how, uh, uh, um, you dynamic this, this, whatever this magic ritual is, that it, it changes over time or it can be changed over time. Cause I know Colin Wilson, he criticized Crawley saying that he never truly completed the, 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 abramel and the mage six-month ritual and this actually cursed his life for the colin wilson seemed to hate Alistair Crowley. crawley <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> like so this sort of cursed his life and no he never achieved this when he was walking across the plains of china or whatever but then along comes robert anton wilson who is sort of that bridge then between that that thelemic ceremonial magic and then these punk rockers out of england these chaos magicians who they don't seem to well, it seems sort of varied. Some of the chaos magic doesn't seem to give much credence to this whole holy guardian angel thing, or I could be mistaken. Maybe they take an even more relativistic view that, you know, how many, maybe we have multiple holy guardian angels, right? <laughs> like, how do you know now when you are, you know, contacting the, the source? Like for instance, Richard, when you had that awesome, like that's just a wild synchronicity. You're smoking a joint, and it always involves weeds somehow, too, right? Like, well, in my life, yeah, same man. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, but you know, you're smoking a joint with this coworker, and then he's like, "Dude, that's my book, right?" Yeah. I um, bought
1: his book. His book about coincidence and synchronicity.
0: That's I know, had it
1: there at that moment. I mean, run the film backwards. You know what I mean? A few years to all of the events that conspired, you know, to make that happen. You know, here's a, another thing that happened briefly that in that same hotel, right, at the Paramount, I was trying to start a record label and I I, I had faxed, I'd sent a fax, right, because it's the 90s to this woman in Rome to get the licensing for these two tracks from this label that she worked for, right? That day at my friend Terry's office, I remember going to her office and using her fax machine and then going to work that night that woman who i faxed in rome handed me her american express card and i was like holy shit you know what i mean yeah but, but the thing is what did they add they don't they never add up to anything but they are interesting and how can you not notice that oh i just faxed you today in a foreign country lady out of the blue and here you are in front of me how did yeah. that happen mm-hmm. how did that happen but that happened but but you think like did i ever did i work with her no, that label never got off the ground. Nothing. That was it. it was a, in, that, that incident was in a silo connected to nothing else, hey. except that there were a lot of things like that. Mm-hmm. But in my lifetime, they've, no, they've never added up. They've never added up to one thing.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a great anecdote and observation on this, uh, because again, it's, you know, Cosmic Trigger is Bob is seeking to find, to add it up to something.
1: He's look. He's yeah. it's pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. Is he's it's pattern recognition. When you see this kind of thing again, you don't have to look for it if it's sort of like that obvious and in front of your face. The Thing I would say is you say that Wilson hacked. You know that uh, he hacked initiation, but he he short circuited it with LSD, okay. and that's that's Leary is the one saying that because if you look at Leary's books and I highly recommend them if you haven't read them, they're they're it's it's strange. It's like. I mean, with Leary, I think there's there's one reason why his books have not necessarily survived the test of time is they're kind of dated in the sense that there's jokes about Jerry Brown and John Denver and Farrah Fawcett. You know, I mean, it's like it's like that kind of thing. But what he is essentially saying in a kind of a jokey, wink, wink way is he's giving away the whole farm on on all of this initiation stuff. He's basically saying that what he started to notice was he's doing a lot of LSD. He's starting to notice patterns. And then when he gets forced out of his comfort zone and he's going, you know, he's, he's living, you know, with, with Eldridge Cleaver and stuff like that. And all of these things start to happen, right? Mm-hmm. And it accelerates that. It, it, what was the term? Free fall. Live, when you live your life in free fall, that's when you're going to attract and notice the most magic but, sort that, of. but that's a big part of Leary is the, is being able to take lsd and just forget about the yoga forget about the breathing exercises forget about studying some mantra for a year just take some fucking lsd and boom it's going to just smash the door down to an, your enlightenment you will be holy this mm-hmm. is what he said he's i don't think he was wrong
0: Right. And, you know, utilizing the Leary uh, uh, lexicon, uh, re-imprint oneself Mm -hmm. into some higher form of oneself. Um, And, uh, yeah, that's a very kind of 70s message with the LSD. And I mean, that carried over into the 90s as well, you know, and we're in such an interesting period now today, like especially over the last 10 years, the the, the signs and symbols that were utilized that in the 70s, even into the 90s, perhaps meant one thing. But now even those countercultural signs and symbols have gotten inverted, subverted, uh, beginning perhaps around 2016, you know. Um, and this new interesting era that we're in of seeking to see what carries through from that period, right? Like, does anything carry through? Like in a you know, in your previous interview with Rushkoff on Team Human, you guys, uh, you know, discussed a bit this notion of the counterculture, what has survived, what still exists from that manifestation you know and where it's at today you know and part of that could be the conversation around synchronicity right and and magic too i mean um you know what is magic right other than the classical definitions of of uh you know changing one's environment or one's sense of one's environment uh in in uh parallel with one's will right um are more people doing magic than ever before, you know, like undoubtedly, Mm. undoubtedly. Oh God. Mm. Yes, absolutely.
1: I mean, I mean, there's two things. One is um, I, and I'm working on this new TV series, right. And I said, I just interviewed 53 practicing occultists. you know, and, um, and, 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 and almost everybody had something to say about synchronicity, by the way, Mm. and no one said anything kooky or weird or whatever, you know, it was all, you know, like highly intellectual, high level, conversations with these people you know I've got some amazing things on
0: tape um that's awesome what's the what's the name of have you released this yet do you know um,
1: um no it, no it's in fact the I'm working I'm working on the pilot for it right now there's four episodes were shot Doug Rushkoff is the executive producer he's the reason that it's all happened <laughs> there's four episodes that have been shot and uh, two of them have been edited to rough cut and one of them is getting to the point today literally while you and I are talking the editor is working in New York and sorry in L.A. To get that to the point where it's you know presentable and no longer such a rough rough cut, so it can go out to TV buyers, you know tomorrow or mm-hmm. Monday. You know, do
0: you have a title for the, the 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 show?
1: Yeah, it's called Magic Show.
0: What what channels are you seeking to get it on? One of the streamers, right? Streaming channel or whoever pays awesome. the most, for sure, for sure, man.
1: But 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 going back to this point is that with if you look at what you know, I subscribe to like, all of these different, you know, TV industry things, you know, so I get these like, you know, oh, here's a PDF of our survey of blah, blah, blah. And one, of, and one of the things that I read recently was saying that like this in the, in the global TV market, this is what they have too much of. This is what they want more of. This is what they would really like to have more of. And they don't have enough of. And almost everything in the top was not Sex-related. It was not music-related. It was not sports-related. It was things like witchcraft, psychic phenomenon. It was like every. It was like in the top twenty things that that the, the television executives are actively looking to find. It was like 50, fifteen of them were magic or psychic or in in or you know in some way relating to the occult, and like two weren't. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, it was just like. You know that's what it is. You know, so I mean, I, I'm I'm hoping that the show is 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 timed just right. You know,
0: mm-hmm. it sounds like it, and it, it definitely is an interesting sort of a peak in in the culture in terms of uh, people interested in in witchcraft and chaos magic and, and and you know, I mean, even Thelema, you know, ceremonial oh. magic.
1: Well, I mean, that's the thing about this thing is, is what I was interested to do was to present some very intelligent people talking about a topic with intelligence and using, you know, great metaphors and you know to to, to describe these things. And I think it hopefully it will inspire more people to want to go out and you know, it doesn't look kooky. It looks like, oh, these people have got like you know, rigorous minds. They're not okay. just themselves. Mm. You know, and, it doesn't, none of these people make any claims to be something that they're not. Mm-hmm. See what I mean? It's mm-hmm. not, none of them are goofy.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, like Crowley's take on magic in some ways, right, is this inner kind of mystical uh, exploration uh, of uh, um, different dimensions within oneself that could be outside of oneself or whatever, if you will, uh, uh, rising through the planes. Um, and then chaos magic has been, I guess, uh, uh, advertised if you will as as results magic you mm-hmm. know uh do this like something like a sigil you know create the sigil in which then uh the, the result can manifest in the universe right like um have you do you don't have to get specific but have you ever used sigils in order to attain a desire yes so it works oh god yeah and magic works that's 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 the point It does work. Mm. It does work. It's
1: just it's a tool. It's a tool. You can do a lot of different things with it. Mm. You know, depends. It depends on what your intentions are and what you want. Mm -hmm. How good you are at it. You know what I mean? It's it's. I mean, I've always looked at magic as like a mental martial art where you know you just don't on your first day. You know, you don't just you're not you're not gonna you know be the get a black belt. You know, you got to you got to build up to it. But you get to a certain point where. You can you can you're going to be more successful mm. getting the things that you want.
0: So how do you get there then? What, what uh, is it through thelema Is it through uh, chaos magic? I know it's a mishmash of all them, but if there's well, any say, one thing,
1: well, I think it's I think it's all of those things. I mean, for me, it's a it's a it's a mission. It's you know yes, there's a strong Crowley current that goes through my way of thinking, but also Tim Leary, William Burroughs, Robert Anton Wilson. Lenny Bruce. I mean, these are the people who informed, you know, my developing mind as a child, you know, and so I sort of see the world through the, through the glimpses of what, of their, what I saw of their worlds through their books or whatever, you know,
0: magic works, Mm -hmm. magic works, Richard. Thank you so much, man. I, I, you know, I appreciate this conversation, uh, getting into a little bit, the backstory of this info, uh, you know, what you're up to these days. And, uh, Yeah, man, it will be great to speak again. Maybe we can go dig a little deeper on the notion of the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel. I think that's a a really interesting topic these days, you know. It's super important for people to understand that. Mm.
1: It's a, you know, it's, it's, you're getting to, you know, you're getting to the same place that. Uh, that Robert Ansel Wilson writes, well, he, he did it himself. I mean, it, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's useful to know what that is, you know, and it's funny too, because it just, just to, to close on this is that one of the people who I interviewed about this, um, uh, Maja Daou, who is the, um, the white witch of, of uh, the witch of the dawn, I think is how she pulls herself in Los Angeles. And she's one of the most knowledgeable people on the occult that I have ever met. I mean, she is fucking brilliant and she's very convincing and, and rational when she talks about these things and she was formerly the librarian at manly hall's philosophical research society the library at the at, at the P P R C. and um and she was just one of the smartest people you could ever meet and knows everything about the occult and ancient history and i mean she just knows it backwards and forwards i mean she's mm. like a walking encyclopedia of this stuff and um She said, she described that the Abramelan magic was the same magic that was being done by the likes of Abraham and Moses. Because, as she says in the show, that there was this, they were getting knowledge from someplace else. And that's what the Abermelon magic is. You know, but that would be the way to get to that place, to achieve that again, to achieve the knowledge and conversation that, you know, I mean, if you think about it, these biblical patriarchs, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: right. Mm. It makes sense.
0: Definitely. I love it. Yeah. You know, I want to dig a little deeper on this, the knowledge and conversation of the Holy guardian angel. Um, But I'll, I'll, uh, I'll pull back a little bit, but, but one thing that does come to mind briefly was, and I want to get your take on it is, you know, especially with UFOs or UAPs in the, 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 media all the time now, you know, like Wilson and cosmic trigger volume one was, was, was following this thread for a long time that, you know, the, the origin of the Holy guardian angel for him was coming, was extraterrestrial at one, at one time, you know, and he even found like parallels then with Crowley's uh, uh, depictions of Iwas or, you know, or, or just whatever, like alien shaped heads that, that, you know, Crawley seemed to sketch a, a gray alien before gray aliens became a a, a trope in, yeah, in Lamb. Yeah, right, Lamb, right? And um, ah, uh, you know, I'm just curious, like, what's your read on that? I know Bob eventually, you know, came back down to earth, if you will, and 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 settled on on a neurological explanation for some of those things. But did you ever wonder, like? Could some of these uh, voices in my head be uh, teleported from some, uh, uh, you know, extraterrestrial place or is that a 70s thing?
1: I don't I don't know, but I will. i I, it, I not in my life. I've not, no, I wouldn't have any experiences where I've attributed it to that. But I will say this, though. Paul Offaly had a cavity that he felt was a, a transmitting station that was beaming alien ideas into his head. And that's where some of the ideas from his paintings came from.